In 19th century America, a movement began to take areas of exceptional natural beauty and preserve them. This idea of setting aside land for the purpose of preservation is something that was never really taken seriously before. These areas became known as national parks, and they spawned a movement of land preservation that spread around the world and continues to this day. Learn more about national parks, America's best idea, on this episode of Everything Everywhere Daily. This episode is sponsored by Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond Bourbon. I recently had the chance to try Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond, and I can attest to its exceptional aromas with hints of caramel and vanilla intertwining with its oakiness, which provide a well-rounded flavor profile. Taking a sip is akin to experiencing a piece of bourbon history firsthand. Heaven Hill Distillery may be America's most quintessential bourbon distillery. Established in 1935 after the end of Prohibition, the distillery was established by the Shapira family and has remained a family-owned distillery to this day. In 1897, Congress passed the Bottled in Bond Act, which set forth strict rules for any bourbon labeled Bottled in Bond. Heaven Hill Bottled in Bond bourbon goes beyond the stringent requirements of the law by aging its bourbon for seven years, not four. The end result is a gold medal-winning bourbon that truly stands out. Available nationally, look for a bottle at your local store. Heaven Hill Bottled in Bond. Heaven Hill reminds you, think wisely, drink wisely. This episode is sponsored by ButcherBox. Summer is right around the corner, and that means cookouts. No matter what your preferred food is for a cookout or a barbecue, ButcherBox can help you make it the best. If you want to serve up some hamburgers, ButcherBox has grass-fed ground beef to make the perfect smash burger. Want to cook up some steaks? Well, ButcherBox has that too, with some of the best cuts of steak, such as New York Strip, ribeye, and filet mignon. Do you like grilled chicken? Well, ButcherBox has some of the best pasture-raised chicken that you will find anywhere. And if you really want to wow people at your next cookout, you can try grilling some of their wild-caught salmon on a cedar plank. Sign up at ButcherBox.com daily and get a special deal. ButcherBox is offering my listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. You can choose salmon, chicken breasts, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at ButcherBox.com daily and use code daily to choose your free-for-a-year offer. Plus, get $20 off your first order. The idea of a national park is something that was a New World phenomenon, and quite frankly really only could have come from the New World. Back in the Old World, that being the massive Afro-Eurasian landmass, people had lived pretty much everywhere all the time. There really weren't any areas which were considered to be untouched or unspoiled. There were just places that people didn't live, and if people didn't live there, no one was probably aware of it given the difficulties in transportation and communication. When Europeans arrived in the New World, they found a land unlike where they came from. In some parts of the New World, such as Mexico and Central America, there were advanced civilizations with agriculture. However, other parts of the New World were populated by nomadic peoples who didn't have as much of an impact on the land. The first Europeans in North America settled on the east coast of the continent. They started farms and towns, different but not too dissimilar from what they had back in Europe. As in Europe, there was really no movement to protect and preserve land in the east. It was only when explorers started to go west in the 19th century that they found something unlike what they had seen before, 
and the seeds were planted for what eventually became the National Park System. The first person to raise the idea of setting aside areas for preservation was the artist George Catlin. He took a trip to the northern Great Plains in 1832 and could see what the future held in store for the region. He saw a future of settlers moving west, setting up farms, and destroying the wildlife and culture of the Indians who lived in the region. He proposed setting aside land to preserve this area before it was lost. He proposed creating a park, quote, by some great protecting policy of government, in a magnificent park, a nation's park, containing man and beast in all the wildness and freshness of their nature's beauty, end quote. No action was taken on his proposal. However, soon after, there began an artistic movement of American transcendentalism where artists such as Thomas Cole and writers such as Henry David Thoreau began to elevate the natural world. To them, nature was something to be appreciated, not something to be overcome. As Western expansion continued, there was more and more pressure to protect some of the outstanding locations before they were overrun. The first action towards the protection of a park was taken in 1864 in the middle of the Civil War. The state of California made a request to Congress to transfer ownership of Yosemite Valley and the Mariposa Giant Sequoia Grove back to the state to, quote, be used and preserved for the benefit of mankind. On June 30th, 1864, President Abraham Lincoln signed a law to transfer the land on the condition that the land, quote, be held for public use, resort, and recreation, inalienable for all time. There was one other particular area in the West that gathered a great deal of attention. It was known as the Yellowstone. For decades, reports from trappers and mountain men dribbled back east about this amazing place where steam came out of the ground and shot into the air. It wasn't until 1869 that an official expedition to the Yellowstone took place, known as the Cook-Folsom-Peterson Expedition. This was followed by several other expeditions in the years immediately following, which mapped the region and documented the wildlife found there. This led to the passage of the Act of Dedication, which was signed by President Ulysses S. Grant on March 1, 1872. It created Yellowstone as the world's first national park. The Act read, quote, be enacted by the Senate and House of Representatives of the United States of America in Congress assembled that the tract of land in the territories of Montana and Wyoming is hereby reserved and withdrawn from settlement, occupancy, or sale under the laws of the United States, and dedicated and set apart as a public park or pleasuring ground for the benefit and enjoyment of the people, and all persons who shall locate, settle upon, or occupy the same or any part thereof, except as hereinafter provided, shall be considered trespassers and removed therefrom. End quote. Yellowstone National Park is worthy of an episode of its own, but suffice it to say that it is one of the most amazing places in the world. The geysers, hot springs, waterfalls, elk and bison all set Yellowstone apart from every other park. By 1886, it became necessary for the park to be administered and protected, so the U.S. Army was commissioned to manage the park. Once Yellowstone was set aside as a park, it opened the door to other areas being declared a park as well. The second national park was declared just three years later in 1875. Mackinac Island is an island in Lake Huron between the northern and southern peninsulas of Michigan, and it was the location of an Army base and saw activity during the War of 1812. Mackinac Island National Park, however, was reverted back to the state of Michigan in 1895 and taken off the roster of national parks. It wasn't until 15 years later that the next national parks were created. 
On September 25th, 1890, Sequoia National Park was established, and just six days later, Yosemite National Park and General Grant National Parks came into existence. General Grant National Park was later expanded and renamed Kings Canyon National Park. As with Yellowstone, Yosemite and Sequoia were administered by the U.S. Army. In fact, from 1899 to 1913, the park was administered in part by the U.S. 9th Cavalry, who were also known as Buffalo Soldiers. In 1903, Captain Charles Young, one of the only black officers serving with the Buffalo Soldiers, was named the superintendent of Sequoia National Park. These cavalry soldiers who served at the park, most of whom were veterans of the Spanish-American War, creased their hats in a style that was called a Montana Peak. That same style is the style that park rangers wear today. Over the next 15 years, there were several new national parks established. Mount Rainier National Park in 1899, Crater Lake National Park in 1902, and Wind Cave National Park in 1903. In the early 20th century, a movement began to extend protection beyond natural sites to cultural ones. In particular, the pueblos and cliff dwellings found throughout the southwest. Thieves would often enter these sites to hunt for artifacts to sell them to collectors. This resulted in the passage of the Antiquities Act of 1906. The Antiquities Act allowed the president, quote, to declare by public proclamation historic landmarks, historic and prehistoric structures, and other objects of historic or scientific interest, end quote. These public lands, which were protected by presidential proclamation, became known as national monuments. The distinction between a national park and a national monument has more to do with how it was established than anything else. Sites with a national park designation are created by an act of Congress. Sites with a national monument designation can be created by presidential decree, assuming it was already on federal land. Many current national parks were once national monuments. The first national monument was declared on September 24, 1906 by President Theodore Roosevelt, Devil's Tower, Wyoming. As the number of parks and monuments started to proliferate, there was a problem. The administration of the parks was split between the Army, the Department of Agriculture, and the Department of the Interior. There was no coherent strategy for the administration of the national parks. There were demands in Congress and among executive departments for a single organization that would be responsible for park management. On August 25, 1916, President Woodrow Wilson signed into law an act that created the National Park Service. The first director of the National Park Service was Stephen Mather. And there are still plaques you can find at 59 Park Service locations dedicated to Stephen Mather, although you may have to know where to look. The National Park Service was a unit of the Department of the Interior. It was given control of all parks and monuments which were controlled by the Department of the Interior and all future parks and monuments. Despite the creation of a park service, there still wasn't a coherent park system because of all the legacy parks which were still under different departments. This was rectified in 1933 when President Franklin Roosevelt issued Executive Order 6166, which placed all federal parks, monuments, battlefields, cemeteries, and memorials under the purview of the National Park Service. A total of 56 new sites were transferred. This expanded the Park Service by placing many things, such as the Washington Monument and the Statue of Liberty, under their administration. This reorganization also included all of the parks in the District of Columbia, as the district was under direct federal control at the time. The Great Depression dramatically expanded the number of sites as many monuments and parks were established as make-work programs. One particular issue which was addressed in the 1930s was a lack of parks in the eastern United States. 
Almost all of the parks were in the West, where most of the land was under federal ownership. East of the Mississippi, most of the land was privately held. This led to the establishment of Shenandoah National Park in Virginia. Unlike other parks which were already on federal land, Shenandoah required the forced eviction of over 450 families, most of whom were subsistence farmers. There was an expansion of the type of sites in the park system, including national seashores, lakeshores, parkways, historic sites, and recreation areas. In the 100 years since the National Park Service was established, the Park Service has grown significantly. As of the time of this recording, there are now 424 individual units in the park system, 63 of which are designated as National Parks proper. Every president since William McKinley has added at least one unit to the National Park System. And one president, Gerald Ford, was actually a former park ranger at Yellowstone National Park. Every state and territory has at least one National Park Service unit, ranging from Delaware with one to California with 28. The parks also have a wide range in visitors. The Blue Ridge National Parkway had 15.7 million visitors in 2022, and the least visited unit in the park system is Anachak National Monument in Alaska, which claims fewer than 300 visitors per year. And having spoken to the bush plane service that actually flies to Anachak, I believe 300 visitors per year is greatly overestimated. In 1986, the Park Service established the National Park Passport Program. You can buy a passport book, which can then be stamped at every unit in the Park Service. And I am personally on my third book. National parks are some of the biggest attractions for foreign tourists to the United States, in particular the big three parks, Yellowstone, Yosemite, and the Grand Canyon. The national parks have been a big part of my travels. Whenever I have to make a trip, I'll always try to make a side trip to visit a national park unit if there's one nearby. To date, I have visited 226 of the 424 units in the system, and 57 of the 63 national parks proper. The national park system is almost always rated as the most popular government agency, regardless of political orientation. It's the one part of the U.S. government which has been emulated by more countries than any other. So, it should come as no surprise that the National Park Service has been called America's Best Idea. The executive producer of Everything Everywhere Daily is Charles Daniel. The associate producers are Thor Thompson and Peter Bennett. Today's review comes from listener L.J. Goodman over on Apple Podcasts in the United States. They write, History and then some made fun. It's hard to believe that anyone is able to produce such an interesting and informative podcast on a daily basis. I always learn something and often find myself doing some additional research after listening to Gary. I rarely miss one of those well-documented and produced episodes. Thanks, LJ. Putting out a show every day is just a matter of showing up for work. You just get up and say, it's time to make the podcast. Remember, if you leave a review or send me a boostagram, you too can have it right on the show. And also remember, you can now leave reviews on individual episodes on Spotify.